You're listening to Sascapes, a podcast featuring the stories of arts, culture, and heritage in Saskatchewan. In this episode of Sascapes, prepare to be engaged. For decades, the concept of an eco-museum has been forming globally, and in 2012, the Saskatchewan Eco-Museums Initiative was formed, and now, in 2015, eco-museums are well on their way in our province. In short, an eco-museum is one without walls. It's an agreement whereby a community and its citizens take care of a place. I'm Kevin Power and I invite you to join me and a few guests with whom I meet during Heritage Week in Regina, Saskatchewan, where a symposium on eco-museums was held. First up is Glenn Souter, the Curator of Human Ecology at the Royal Saskatchewan Museum. Glenn has the ideal background to be spearheading this concept and gives us a bit of history on eco-museums and where we go from here. Then fast-forwarding through time, the second half of this podcast takes place the following day at the symposium itself, and I'll speak with Ingrid Kasikoff from Heritage Saskatchewan, Wendy Fitch from the Museums Association of Saskatchewan, as well as a few community representatives who are forming eco-museums in their own communities. Enjoy the podcast. I'm in Regina, the provincial capital of Saskatchewan, and sitting in uh, the original Sasktel building, I understand, as I'm told by my guest, who is Dr. Glenn Souter. Glenn, thanks for joining me. Oh, nice to be here. You are the uh, human ecology curator here at the Royal Saskatchewan Museum. I am. I've been in that position for almost 17 years, and uh, as far as I know, I'm the only curator of human ecology, uh, probably in Canada, right? which is a story in itself, in a way. Yes, so tell me, that, that was going to be my first question, tell me, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a unique field and certainly yes. one that cuts a wide swath as far as it uh, does. what it can embrace, so tell me how it started for you. It, well, it's, it started with an exhibit. We did a, in, when I started here back in the late 90s. Um, the museum was working on a special space they wanted to dedicate to human environmental issues Mm -hmm. to finish off the new life sciences gallery. And it had a title that was called The Human Factor at the time and still is. And I was brought on to basically help develop that space. And and I I was fresh off a doctorate here at the University of Regina and Prior to doing my doctorate, I worked in Ottawa with the Royal Society of Canada, right. which was um, where I was coordinator of the Canadian Global Change Program. Um, so I've had a very interesting career that way, a scientist by in many many by training, mm-hmm. a biologist specifically mm. with interesting conservation issues, 
And my, my time with the Royal Society, though, it convinced me that we need to be working across disciplines. Mm-hmm. And I did. I, I no qualms about having done a biology degree because it's a, a fascinating lens to put on a lot of the things that I think about and study and teach about um, and do exhibits about. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but those things, by their nature, are not restricted to one or two disciplines. Right. They require us to move across disciplines. And a lot of the things we've set up in academic circles or through our education system, they're artificial. Mm-hmm. They're, they're there simply to allow us to focus down on something and understand it. And what I came to be excited by was the notion that we can step back from that and become interdisciplinary in our perspective. So I was very lucky. I think the museum was working, was looking for someone at that time who could look after the bird collection. So I had that, the, uh, the ornithology background through mm-hmm. my degree. But they also wanted someone with a broader perspective to do the human factor. So I was, a, I think, a pretty obvious choice. Right. And um, the human factor, working on that was still a wonderful memory in my life because it's not often you get 1,200 square feet of gallery space right, to work right, with right. and uh, and sort of uh, allowed to come up with ideas to go in there. Mm-hmm. And also it was a fantastic team that was in place at the time with Blair Fraser doing exhibit development and, and gallery design and great people on staff here. There continues to be, but mm-hmm. at the time it was a few different folks. And... Um, I got to bring my I got to put my own stamp on that space. Mm-hmm. So I had the biology, I had the ecology background, and they had envisioned the space they re- where uh, the the economic side of our unsustainable course of development was made clear. Mm-hmm. And I thought, all that's good, but where's the individual in that? Right. So. I worked to bring in the psychological side Mm -hmm. and good timing really because there was really interesting stuff coming out in the fields of ecological economics, ecological psychology and there I was working with artists and other scientists to create this this exhibit Mm -hmm. Um, and as we worked through it I'm getting to the answer by the way to your question I I sense you're getting there (laughs) As we worked through it, um, I continued to be responsible for the birds and at the time was curator of ornithology because that's usually what curators are about. They're about a collection. Sure. Um, But it dawned on us that museums like ours and and others have a huge role to play around sustainable development. There's very few institutions in society that, that offer a space that mm-hmm. people can come to and be reflective about issues of the day. Mm-hmm. And those issues are all about the ecology of our species. Mm-hmm. So I dropped the title Curator of Ornithology in favor of Curator of Human Ecology, and I've shifted my the focus of my research program towards sustainability education and the role that museums can play, um, the importance of looking at these things from from a, across a number of disciplines, yes, and at a number of scales. Because 
the other the other danger, of course, is it just becomes well the individual and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I can look after my own backyard, kind of thing. Right. But that's not enough either, right. because something like climate change is telling us we are being impacted by a larger globalized system and economic system in some ways, but also the climate system. When it wants to change, right, it's going to affect us. So we have to have these. Uh, we have to consider multiple scales as well as multiple disciplines. Right. And that the, the field of human ecology defined that way, uh, defined broadly as the ecology of our species, it uh, it's a nice wide foundation for doing that sort of work. Right. So that's a field that has been, I mean, you've defined the name of this field to, to suit the work that you are really passionate about doing. Or yes. are there programs that are specifically titled um, in, in institutions where you can study um, and get degrees in human ecology? Yes, there are many, okay. hundreds around the world, especially in the United States. They've really adopted that broader perspective. Okay. Um, and like anything else, uh, it really depends where you go. Right. Uh, in some cases, and I know the folks who have advanced degrees in human ecology and they're they have a number of um, intriguing elements to their to their work, but it's, it can be mostly about family studies or textile studies, or um, it re- I guess it, it really depends how people have decided to chop up the area. Right. Um, but there's in many cases, in many programs, in many human ecology projects, and it's a I've got there's a well-respected journal. Mm-hmm. or two that uh, report on all this, you'll find sustainable development threads moving all through it. Right. So it's it, it does have the breadth required for that work. Right. And that work ultimately led you to become the chair of what is known as the Saskatchewan Eco Museum Initiative. Yes. Um, and yes. there's a you're the there's a steering committee that is forming mm-hmm. um, to create this eco museum concept yes. uh, throughout Saskatchewan. And your this is sort of your baby. This is something that you've. I mean, it it it, it exists in other parts of the world, but I, yes. there was not one in, in Saskatchewan. In other other provinces have seen and still have eco museums. Okay. Uh, but there was nothing in Saskatchewan except for uh, Redbury Lake Biosphere Reserve is operating has operated for years mm-hmm. as sort of an eco museum, but they don't use the, they haven't been using the word. Right. So uh, when did this steering committee form in Saskatchewan? It came into being in 2012, about eight months after I sent out a letter asking a bunch of organizations and other people I knew um, if they were interested in this model, which mm-hmm. has been around as you, for 30 years or more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got quite a response. I got a response at two levels from a, a range of communities across the province, over a dozen, wrote back and said, this sounds cool. Mm-hmm. What, how can we learn more about it? And also at the provincial scale in terms of different organizations piping up and saying, yeah, we'd be, we think this is an intriguing idea as well. And ever since uh, that, I pulled that committee, the steering committee together to get those provincial organizations 
uh, at the same table. Right. And I've also been working with a number of those communities that express some interest. Hey, it's Kevin. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. Just a quick reminder that the Sascapes podcast is available for free on your favorite podcast app, or you can stream it from your browser. Check out the show notes for the link. On the Sascapes homepage, you'll notice something new under the logo called Sascapes Plus. You can't miss it. There's a big button saying support with a heart icon next to it. I'd love it if you could click on that button and help keep this podcast series going. When Sascapes launched in May 2014, it was the first podcast in the province celebrating arts, culture, and heritage. In fact, you'd have been pretty hard-pressed to find any Saskatchewan podcast. So I'd like to think that we paved the way. It's been because of your support that this podcast is now in its ninth year. Okay, that's it. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Right. So the big question is, what is this eco museum project this idea? Yes. This is yes. this um, this can be summed up as museum without walls. That's the nicest, which is the ni- right. perspective on it. Yes. Right. Although I am a fan of, uh, I read on the website somebody there's a, you know, a a phrase expect to be engaged, which I love. <laughs> yes, I, I, I can love. see that too. Yeah. And uh, the other metaphor that I've been using lately is a mirror. Mm-hmm. That an eco museum can provide a community with a mirror, mm-hmm. so it can reflect on itself, and uh, and I I relate to that. Which one of us doesn't look in a mirror every right. morning when right. we're brushing our teeth, and uh-huh. you know we make sure things are okay for the day, and right. and we see it again at the end of the day. Right. It's um, and it, it's back to that notion that museums have a larger role to play. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got. I think there's a misconception out there. Uh, and it's it's prevalent and it carries a lot of weight that somehow museums are about objects. Mm-hmm. And it's more than that, in my experience. I love museums, always have. Mm-hmm. And sure, it's important for them to, for certain types of museums, to gather in material evidence and keep it, mm-hmm. protect it. Um, but at the same time, it, museums, in my experience, are about experience. Mm-hmm. They're about just being in awe and being in a space that inspires awe. That's the larger meaning mm-hmm. of a museum. It's a gathering place for the muses right. that inspire people that, and that lead them to unleash their creativity. Right. And objects can do that, but they can also, uh, they can also simply be windows on, on larger experiences. So, I mean, you can imagine having having the most amazing work of art in a in a, a busy mall somewhere and the space is not conducive to reflection. Right, right. So the power of the art is gone. Right. Absolutely gone. We put that in a different space where the muses are gathering around mm-hmm. that art and people are so we're we're reflective animals. We we anticipate things. We like to dwell and it's a it's an amazing ability we have as a species. Mm-hmm. So museums can can nurture that ability. That's why that's why they're so important, right? In society, uh, and why it's, I always get a little. Um, I don't know if my dander goes up or what, <laughs> but it's the notion that we stop at the object, right? Is um, 
it's very narrow. Right. And I think doesn't do a service to the larger meaning of museum. Uh, and then an eco-museum where it's a museum without walls. The things that inspire reflection are left where they exist. Right. They're in their environment. They're in their environment. And they mm-hmm. can be things. Mm-hmm. They can be buildings. They, mm-hmm. can be, they can be experiences, cultural festivals. They can be um, the, 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 the norms of a community. The coffee row, you know, that yeah. where people are drawn to and feel um, empowered and the, the collective strength of the collective. So is it, is it a way of, of redefining community um, or, or the way we look at community? I mean, I, we move through communities. We take, we take everything around us for granted eventually. Yeah, we stop noticing. Mm. Um, I think it could... I think it has the capacity to shift people's perspective about their community. Uh-huh. Um, but is that its primary goal? Well, I see its primary goal as enhancing the well-being of people okay. so who are in the community. The and sustainability. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, the, and doing that through respecting the heritage, respecting the parts of living heritage that... Mm-hmm are uh, present on the landscape. I love that idea of living heritage, mm-hmm. that it's, we have certain norms and beliefs and that we're always expressing. Um, <clears throat> and to capture that, not to, capture is the wrong word because it suggests that you're freeze-drying it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> and entrapping it. Right. But just making it accessible. Right. Not only to us when we need it as producers of that experience, but also to people who might just happen to encounter it as visitors or, or whatever. I mean, that lends to, that adds to um, my affection for a place, mm-hmm. how dependent I feel on a place, mm-hmm. how attached I feel to a place. Mm-hmm. So I think it does, I think that's the way it can affect how people relate to their community right is your if you're going to start affecting sense of place through attachment dependence all those things then uh, the odds are your work your work to enhance well-being right through that process and uh, the eco museum is an interesting mechanism to make that happen right and so you have to bring communities together to choose uh, this is a lousy metaphor, but to choose what will be on display in this museum without walls. Yes, that's right. That's the, because it does have two parts, right? Mm-hmm. It does have the museum part to the word, right? So there are there's a sense of permanence. There's a sense of exhibition, mm-hmm. of highlighting, interpreting what's there. The mm-hmm. thing, the eco part is, it's there in the ecosystem, right? You can't you can't take. You can't really take St. Victor's petroglyphs right. out and chunk it into a building right. and expect it to have the right. same impact. Right. Right. But when you're there, surrounded by the ambiance, the context, mm-hmm. then the full experience can materialize. Right. Or it's more likely to. Well, the obvious, the obvious um, elements are those which occur naturally uh, um, geographically but when mm. we talk about bringing into the concept of an eco museum 
um, other aspects of the community, like Coffee Row, yes. um, then yeah. you're starting to bring the less obvious objects um, to the table. Right. Yet they, Coffee Row only is unique because of its very setting within the community. You couldn't right. uproot Coffee Row. In, well, I suppose you could create a faux Coffee Row in a museum, um, yes. but it would it would still not be truly reflective of how it no. appears within a community. You know what? And I think we have good radar when it comes to authenticity. Right. And if there's something about that coffee row that wasn't authentic, right. then the stories would stop flowing. Right. And if, if an Eco Museum is anything, it's a it's a mechanism that brings stories to light. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a community, I mean, those, those social connections happen in certain places. The hockey rink... <laughs> It's another one. Sure. Uh, coffee roll, of course. Yeah. Um, and what comes out of those interactions? Well, stories come out. Right. And communities are can be bound together and in some cases torn apart, torn apart, I suppose, mm-hmm. by the stories. Yeah. By their own stories. Yeah. Beyond the committees that are forming the Eco Museum, for the people that are living in the communities, how do you bring an awareness to the fact that they their community is in fact an eco museum. I, that's a. I think there's a number of things come to my mind, mm-hmm. but, I, but I want to qualify it by saying that's still an open question, and okay. I think it does depend on the individual locations mm-hmm. how they approach it. But I think there are some principles that have to be brought to bear, and one is inclusiveness. Mm-hmm. So everybody who has who expresses interest in what an eco museum is about has the chance to identify what's valuable to them, mm-hmm. to say why it's valuable, mm-hmm. to feel engaged through the eco museum process in enhancing the well-being of that community. Right, that's critical. And I've I've said to a number of during a number of eco museum discussions that if, for example, if there are local businesses or Maybe in a local industry that's actually, you know, and looking from a distance, it might be having certain uh, less desirable impacts on the landscape. Yeah. They should be at the Eco Museum table. Right. Because it's it's there partly for them. I mean, it also has to reflect democratic processes. So these things are understood to be transparent and democratic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has to be tangible, so it's not just blowing smoke or a bunch of words in the air. It, right. it needs to be doing real things on the ground. Right. <clears throat> um, a great example of that is the Val Marie Eco Museum right. that's been set up. Uh, they've just they've been running an artist in residence program, mm-hmm. so they have through that work some, you know, some. Uh, act pieces and and uh, results of the artistic effort mm-hmm. that they can show. They have, it's fairly it's as concrete as that type of work can get. Right. So, and it's a. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a. It's caught on uh, globally. I mean, you've been recognized by the um, University of United, United Nations, Nations University, University. Yes. yeah, um, for outstanding mm-hmm. initiative, mm-hmm. Um, and that's a. Th- Global think tank, yeah, that that university. Yes, um, yes, they run or they have um, 
uh, installed or recognized, I think, 135 centers mm-hmm. of excellence or centers of expertise, sorry, around the world yeah. on sustainability education. And we have one of those centers in Saskatchewan. Right. And our provincial project is a core a core project of the of RCE Saskatchewan. So in that capacity we were we were given the honor of that award. Yeah. When did you make it onto their radar? November. Oh, right. Just a few months ago. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Saskatchewan is on the map. Yes. And we were the top of our category. Uh-huh. <laughs> so And they break it down into categories? Yeah, I think they had some they had a, a there were twenty or thirty other projects recognized at that conference, mm-hmm. and ours was best in show. <laughs> right, right. Wow, great. Yeah. Um, so, where are we? I mean, we're going to talk tomorrow to some of the representatives right. um, who are developing this concept in their community. Right. Um, but where are we at in your estimation? I mean, is this is this progressing um, at a speed which which you're pleased about? I mean, is it is it Catching on, yeah, yeah. we're yes, it is. I, I'm I'm astounded. Actually, I knew I knew it was an interesting idea, and that we might get a one or two mm-hmm. um, communities out there to to take it up. But um, currently, we have three to four, depending on how you categorize it, uh, right. active eco museums right. in the province. And in the last two months, I've been contacted by another. Half a dozen or so. So I think in 18 months out, we'll have even more. And there's also, we've been encouraged to apply for some research funding. Mm-hmm. So if we're successful in getting that, then there'll be a major injection of, of uh, human power right. to, uh, to really uh, to facilitate and to track this process as it moves ahead. Um, which is a, also a way to make sure the provincial organizations, the provincial government is kept abreast of it, of course. Um, and nationally, there, it's getting some, attracting some interest because one of the eco museums is centered in uh, what the National Trust or Heritage Canada mm-hmm. is calling a living region. Yeah, it goes from Mortlach up to the Valley just northeast of the city here. Mm-hmm. So it's a very big region, and and the Katepwa Calling Lakes Eco Museum is within there, is operating within it. So there's a natural connection back to a nat- this national uh, platform, right? And then of course the RCE network it goes globally, right? So there's a real need to keep information and keeping keep updates flowing. Uh, but that can only, that can only be good. I think the the big thing that I'm wary of is that we put the cart before the horse and and uh, something happens like um, you know if uh, somehow we decided well we need really strict criteria to be designated as an eco museum. Right, right. I would just Defeating kill it, kill it fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So failing that, I think these things will continue to bubble up from the grassroots as they have been all of these places are self-identified mm-hmm. I, I i did not go out and handpick a number of communities mm-hmm. saying you shall be an eco-museum right part of the research i want to mm-hmm. undertake uh, and i am actually undertaking with partners at uh, at uh, tampion college here in the city looking at what 
why communities decide to go for an ecu museum and what difference does it make right for them but that's a longer term right. project some of the issues that are top of mind for these communities now um maybe they've gotten worse over the last yeah. 20 or 30 years yeah climate change is here yeah. there's no no scientific debate about it now right uh so that's going to affect our water we need to be looking after water so when water quality becomes an issue, mm-hmm. it's got these other um, pervasive problems yeah. supporting it and keeping it on top of people's minds. You know, we, I mean, that's a that's a, one that really hits home for a, an arid landscape like we have right, here. Right. If we're gonna if we're gonna um, not respect the the water regime we have and mm-hmm. look after it, well, climate change will make sure. Yeah, sure. We have to. Right. So and there's that th- part of it. And that also might be opportunity. I think that's the flip yeah, side. right. I think with uh, a lot of organizations lining up behind the idea and people seeing that kind of in principle support, no buckets of money. There's never, there will yeah. never be <laughs> buckets of money <laughs> right. around the eco-museum work. Right, right. That would also kill it, frankly. Right. But uh, within principle support and a lot of these organizations wanting it to Wanting people to give it a try, right? Um, do you think, think the Do you think the demographic? I mean, the demographic of communities is constantly changing. I mean, I've been to yes. some, I've done podcasts in some towns where you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who originally grew up there. There's a few, right. it's a handful of people who sort of hold the keys to the story of the community, right. and then you've got lots of young families who are there who aren't aware. So, right, yeah. This are those people um, making their voice known? Are those some of the people that are coming to the table, or is it the people who've been in the communities for a very long time who are who are worried that that the the, the stories of their communities are disappearing? It's a mix. Mm-hmm. Certainly, there are some. Val Marie again is an example where uh, artists have been moving to that community. Yeah. It's attracting a, a, a vibrant arts yeah. community, despite its small size, mm-hmm. or maybe because of a small size, mm-hmm. who knows. Um, so in that case, I think it's uh, a group that is that loves the ranching culture, that loves the natural landscapes and the dark sky at night, and uh, of course at night. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's the occasional eclipse. That's right. <laughs> and the eclipse would be part of the Eastern Museum as well. So. I would think so. I would think so. But they're attracted to the special qualities yeah, of the right. place, and they want to they want to enhance that. Right. Um, and then up in the Capel, there are there are people coming to the table who've been there for generations, and with First Nations yeah. folks, of course, even fur, much yeah. further back. So there's a strong sense, strong connection to that landscape, and they, I think, it, these things seem to be coming out of places where there's some tension mm-hmm. you know uh, like the water quality issue up in Nippa when they're wondering about they're concerned about potential clear cutting of a old growth forest um, in Valmarie it's more I think this is amazing the ranching culture is something we want to embrace and integrate and, right. and build on um, and of course with the national park there there's uh, the natural heritage is, is uh, 
it's it's dominant. It's yeah. it's one of the most last amazing experiences. And the landscape of farming changes in the province as well. So yes. how does that affect um, mm-hmm. communities? And well, yeah, that's a that's an interesting one because it, we're seeing very few homesteads. We're seeing yes. lots being divided up. We're seeing yes. family selling farms. Yes, um, and that has to change the profile of a community as well. It does. It. it I'm sure it does. There's. Um, I can't. I as I can't see a connection between that landscape change and some of the discussions we've had uh-huh. to this point, but it might just be a matter of time. Right. Or maybe it's a scale. It's happening at a scale where it's, um, you know, it's not naturally encapsulated in a, at the community level. Right. I don't know. So here's but, a question. Maybe yeah. this is just being too esoteric, but um, or maybe I'm about to say something that is quite obvious. If a community in Saskatchewan is an eco-museum, mm-hmm. is the province as a whole one big eco-museum? Are, is the province affected by each of its communities and therefore is each community an exhibit within this museum without walls? Interesting. I, it's an interesting perspective on it. it uh, someone, uh, a good a friend of mine said, we are all exhibits in an eco-museum. <laughs> so I don't really know where you could, I right. mean, in, it, it would follow that there's, unless you decide to put the bounds on it there, it would mm-hmm. just go on forever. Right. Farming and ranching and First Nations histories and how those histories are still alive now and what they've meant to the land, coupled with an awareness of the land itself and the, and Decisions at all levels were being made out of a out of a genuine land ethic mm-hmm. that showed the land due respect. Right. And you probably get a sense that yeah, this province is an eco museum. I think where eco museums work well, from what I've read, uh, they're basically following principles of adaptive management. They are they're undertaking things on the on the in their region, yeah, and respecting the feedback that comes to them as a result of those actions, right, and then shifting, shifting their direction to adapt to that feedback. That's what adaptive management's all about. Mm-hmm. Um, that requires a deep appreciation for science mm-hmm. because it's a powerful way of knowing. Um, and you know, there are eco museums that will undertake regular surveys biological surveys mm-hmm. so they're monitoring the health of you know, water quality would be one example um, or, or bird bird surveys um, it's a way not just of enjoying the experience of seeing birds but getting feedback from that experience to to tell you yes this piece of land is healthy mm-hmm. or moving in directions we want it to at its essence it is about the community I think, uh, yes. You've got to start there. And I think it has to be within a scale that people can easily perceive. Sure. Because we can perceive a province on a map and, and all, but really, as in, we're kind of evolutionarily wired to, to, to think about watersheds. Yeah. And I think, anyway, that that's about the limit we can get to. I can, I can relate to what's in my watershed 
Right. Um, and I can understand intuitively, intellectually, what's beyond that watershed. Mm-hmm. But as you, as you walk around, um, I mean, we've had hundreds of thousands of years of relating to an area that we can easily walk around. Mm-hmm. It's only recently have we had the wherewithal to travel so far so fast. Sure. So it, I don't think it's, I don't think we're quite as astute at that scale as we might think we are. Um, so that's where it gets down to a scale that's manageable yeah. for humans right. in, in human experience. The eco-museums are, are highly situated. Yeah. I know of one in Sweden that's all around the fact that people there love to ride their bikes. Ah, right? So the local right. culture is steeped in, right. in bike riding. Right. So they've, they've, they've grown up programs and offer experiences that take advantage of that. Compared to one in northern Italy, which is around a, um, a hillside vineyards, which have been were all but destroyed because of mismanagement and other factors. Uh, and they've, through eco-museum practices, they've recovered the hillside um, economy. Mm-hmm. And now they're starting to produce wine again. Mm-hmm. And that's, they're both eco-museums. Right. But... They're they're responding to local issues again at a scale that makes sense for the community. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I should think the First Nations community um, would devour this concept. I mean, it is it is yeah. so ingrained in their culture uh, to celebrate the land. I I think so. I mean, excuse me. I don't have the background or or feel comfortable. Right. Trying to anticipate what they're, uh-huh. how they might con- view it, but mm-hmm. cert- I've certainly had very positive responses right. um, from people with that with that worldview. It's, it's a it's a holistic, integrated perspective, mm-hmm. and as I understand First Nations worldviews, they are holistic and integrated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I would uh, say so. immersed in, imbued with with a lot of the living heritage yeah. and essence of living heritage, yeah. the spirit, the, 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 the cultural norms, the traditions. Yeah, right. So we're in an interesting week here. This is yes. Heritage Week, and, yes. and um, there's some things happening around the Eco Museum yes. uh, this week. Tell me a bit yes. about that. Well, tomorrow morning we're pulling together active... Uh, people from active sites and other communities that have expressed some interest for a, a, a networking session. So those people get to talk to each other a little bit. Um, in the afternoon, uh, with the help of Dale Jarvis, who's a, a expert in living heritage and folklore, we'll talk about community engagement, mm-hmm. what that's all about, and mm-hmm. how, again, eco-museums are one mechanism for encouraging community engagement. And then on Saturday at the Heritage Saskatchewan Forum, uh, we'll have a panel and the the uh, folks from active Eco Museum sites will have a chance to really uh, highlight some of the work they've been doing for a larger a larger group. Is that the first forum really happening around this concept? Mm-hmm. On this scale? On this scale, certainly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes, but again, if we're successful in getting some research funding, part of the proposal was to hold a symposium in two years' time 
that would uh, um, bring the issue, bring the idea back to the fore. Right. So. Right. And the hope beyond this week is mm-hmm. that those who are already initiating the eco museums within the concept continue that yes. growth. I'm hoping they're reinvigorated. They get invigorated yeah. by the experience. Yeah. How many would you say at this point um, are on their way? How many eco museums? Yeah. Two and a half. Okay. Right. <laughs> I say and a half because um, in one case that I know that uh, there's local enthusiasm like crazy and it just needs to be organized. So. Right. Uh, you mentioned um, funding. Can you tell me a bit about the organizations that are coming to the table as far as supporting this idea? I believe sure. SAS Culture would SAS be SAS Culture one of them. is one of them. <laughs> Yay, Yay yeah. SAS Culture. Yes, yeah. our... Our steering committee currently includes SAS Culture Heritage Saskatchewan, mm-hmm. um, Museums Association of Saskatchewan, Nature Saskatchewan, um, the Raven Consortium, which is a group of First Nations consultants, mm-hmm. and uh, Heritage Canada, the National Trust. Uh-huh. So we've got a national body, one of the governors, right. actually two of the governors are at the table when we talk. So. That's a pretty nice position to be in. You must find this very... And the provincial ex- government. And my yes. museum. Right. <laughs> Parks, culture, and sport. Of course. Yes. yes. Where would we be without them? <laughs> and Saskatchewan lotteries. Yes. Um, this must be give you a, a tremendous sense of pride. It's sort of pulling together all of the aspects of, of your academic background, um, fueled by the, you know your, your passions. Um, in life, it's sort of culminated all in this point as if it was meant to be that you found yourself in this place. Well, I, maybe that's why I always go back to saying the timing's right. Yeah. And I, I think all I did was have the idea. Yeah. So um, I, I want to give a lot of credit to uh, the folks, Wendy Fitch and Ingrid Kasikoff from uh, Dennis Garrick and the people mm-hmm. who are at the table provincially trying mm-hmm. to move this ahead. Um, and of course, to the people in in the, the, our active sites, uh, Heather Sauter at Valmarie and uh, Lorene Marchand down there, uh, Jan Morier in North Central Regina here, uh, Ora Lee McPherson and Jim Harding and others yeah. in, the, in the valley. Mm-hmm. Um, these things live and die based on what they decide to do. So uh, I guess I, I do have some, some pride attached to it, but it's more, uh, more humility because if it actually does some good things in those communities, then um, then we'll be doing good work. Right. And if it makes helps those communities address sustainability issues, to me, that's the definition of good work. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and it's really the larger role that all types of museums should be playing. So. And as this concept grows and develops and becomes mm-hmm. more solidified, mm-hmm. um, it does attract people from outside of the province to want to come here to celebrate those. You know what? I think that's, I mean, the the the, the place it fits with our, the current government, mm-hmm. provincial government, is our economy is growing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that uh, everyone needs to be aware of. Um, so if an eco-museum can actually help a community manage its growth, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's responsible governance, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, yeah, and ultimately it helps 
improve people's sense of well-being, sense of attachment to a place, then you're right, people will want to come here and stay here. Well, time and time again, no matter what community I'm in, people stay here because they love this province. They love their towns. Yeah. They're, yeah. They're, they've traveled all over the world, but they keep coming back here. There's something, mm. there's something that um, grounds them being in this province. So well, it's, it's interesting. tangible. I'll have to ask this question somehow, but I've had the notion that as I work on eco-museums that I would love to have an eco-museum to start up in my hometown. Where I grew up, because I know it, you know, you know Where your did hometown you pretty up? well. Uh, Sirs, Manitoba, right. just across the border in yeah. the southwest of that province. So I'd be curious to know, as people come to understand the idea, how how many of them think this would have worked? This would be great. Yeah, would have been great in my hometown. Yeah, yeah, it might really connect back to people's sense of place that way. Well, just think of as people listen to this, they will that people will say, I know, the communities, people listen and they they will want to have their town represented. They will. Yeah. There's yeah. tremendous pride in this province in their, in their towns. And right. Their communities. And there's no reason we can't have 500 eco-museums in the province. Yeah. Uh, that would kill me trying to start all those up. <laughs> but really, baby steps. Maybe, maybe, yes. Yeah. But it certainly is something done by a community for the community so right soros has been hit pretty hard on oh you know, yes that flood was i was there in 2011 i went back my mom was 90 she's since passed on but mm -hmm. she was still living in the in her house on the river and so i got i went there to help with flood relief and wow watched my backyard wash away i'm sure <laughs> if it yeah. was on the river it was and, and that had a huge impact in Saskatchewan as well, the Estevan era. Yeah, same. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think they still have water from leftover. Yeah. That's all drained away. Yeah. No, that was that was amazing. An amazing flood because I had I had seen the big one in seventy six because I was living there at mm -hmm. the time. But it came and went. It was gone by the end of May. Right. But in 2011, the water was high into August. Wow. So those trees, which are riparian, in some cases, cottonwoods and, mm -hmm. and elms and things that didn't mind having their feet wet, well, they just drowned because right. they were right. covered in water for three months. Right. And so that's, it's really changed the entire uh, riparian corridor. Well, that's just a, a, a final thought on this is that I suppose um, an eco museum is constantly shifting. It will, yes. It will. It will never be the same twice. No, no. I mean, I mean, if if a Capel-based eco museum was really watching its water quality, mm -hmm. right, and then something comes along that affects that water quality, yeah. then that's how they can get ahead of the the wave. Sorry, right. bad pun. <laughs> get my meaning. Yeah, yeah. But I'm sure. Yeah, you you. You can't reverse damage done by a flood to no. to a, a group of trees. No. And, and when all is said and done, you've had a huge shift in your right. eco-museum by virtue of the fact that Mother Nature came in and paid a visit. Right. And I think that's the other reason it's good that it's an eco-museum. Mm -hmm. Like it's not a... Eco implies it's about the home mm -hmm. and relationship, mm -hmm. um, which is also always changing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not a stagnant con 
a concept. Yeah. It's very fluid. Yeah. Right. It needs to be. Well, I hope the week proves to be very fluid as far as uh, I'm excited to get into it, I have flowing. to say. Yeah. I have to say, yeah. I'm looking forward to tomorrow. Me too. Thanks so much, Glenn. You bet. Thank you. We'll, this has uh, been fun. We'll see you tomorrow. Yes. For sure. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Did you know that full versions of Sascapes can be downloaded or streamed for free from the iTunes Store, Stitcher Radio, and on SoundCloud? Feel free to leave us a review or star rating. And now, back to the podcast. So that you don't remain mystery voices exactly. on my podcast. Exactly. You are Ingrid exactly. Kazakoff, the CEO <laughs> of, of Heritage, Heritage Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan. Yes. Right, and Wendy Fitch. Fitch, the executive director of the Museums Association of Saskatchewan. Right, and you are both key players in yes. developing this. Yes, absolutely. Right, yeah. so it matters mm-hmm. dearly to you. Yes, Very much yeah, we're so. excited Very, about this. Yeah, this is, this is really... Uh, um, a new, uh, new and old, because mm-hmm. eco-museums have been around since the 1970s, mm-hmm, started right. in France. But it's taken this long for us to really figure out how it can work here. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of energy from mm-hmm. a lot of communities. There's a lot of people in this province who are thinking of this as, oh, maybe we can do this. Maybe this is how we can take control of our community and be part of how things are done. Mm-hmm. It comes back to the concept of citizen. Yeah. Not a consumer of, but a citizen of Another our community. Place. Right. Right. And and essentially I've I've always liked the definition of eco museum as a an agreement where a community mm-hmm. uh, decides to take care of a place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, you know, that that's what it's all about. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's wonderful. Yeah. And you can feel that there, the timing is right. I mean, we've mm-hmm. only just begun um, this, this few days of discussion, but even just in, this morning in the dialogue, mm-hmm. you can feel that the, the, the people want this. They, they yeah. yeah, there's a real, real uh, um, desire mm-hmm. on the part of a lot of different communities to look at this. And we've, we saw that when we had a, uh, um, an engagement session over a year ago and there were a lot of people that came and were interested in what was this all about. And from that, we have four demonstration sites and a whole lot of other communities, both urban and rural, saying, you know, this is something we'd like to explore too. So so we'll explore together. Yeah, I think it's, it's so, a journey yeah. that we're all on and, and it's going to be fun. I think it's because we take incredible pride in this province, in our communities, in our oh, yeah. towns, that, mm-hmm. that this has such yeah. energy behind it. I think so. Well, it, it relates to quality of life, right, mm-hmm. that goes beyond those economic values. Um, economics are, are, are critical, Yeah. but it's not the only driver why people want to, to stay in this province, why they want to live, work, and play here. Yeah. yeah. So a job is important, but mm-hmm. it doesn't make a place your home. Right. All of the other aspects of what a community is, is what makes a place a home. So that's what this is all about, is how is this identified as our home? Mm -hmm. It's living heritage. Exactly. Thank you both. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, now I'm going to move across the room. Let's see who we've got here. So now I'm with Jan Morier. Yes. And Jan, you are representing... North Central Community right. in Regina. Here. Right, and you are creating um, an urban eco-museum. Yes. Uh, North Central Regina is uh, one of the older communities in the city, 
and um, it was established earlier on. It's even got some standing buildings from the 1911 cyclone, for goodness sake. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, it's always been a blue-collar kind of a neighborhood. Mm -hmm. uh, in the last few decades, there have been an influx of amazing people from reserves, of course, when the past system was done away with. Uh, in the 60s. Only in the 70s did they really come into our neighborhood uh, with uh, a lot of uh, hope for uh, economy, for jobs, for uh, keeping their heritage alive, but that wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. Consequently, we've had a kind of a critical mass of uh, nasty things happen due to poverty mm -hmm. for the most part. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, it's kind of an old housing stock neighborhood. So a lot of interesting people have moved in. Some moved on. But uh, those who have stayed, we've got a combination of um, longtime residents, new Canadians now, mm -hmm. and certainly the uh, Aboriginal population is, uh, makes its presence known in so many good ways. Mm -hmm. North Central Regina has got this kind of umbrella of organizations anyway, and it's called uh, Together Now Interagency. And we meet uh, several times a year to discuss what we're doing and how we can work together and cooperate and share. Uh, I hang out a lot at the North Central Community Association. And again, it kind of tries to corral all of those groups. So when this idea, this concept of uh, an eco-museum came along, I was here covering it for Heritage Saskatchewan, and I thought, we already do that. We yeah. do that already. Yeah. Let's formalize it. Yeah. Let's call it something, what it is. Let's bring in that placemaking concept so that everybody who lives in the neighborhood can get to know one another a lot more, can engage with each other, share each other's cultures. We've already started to do that through our second annual Culture Days Festival, mm -hmm. street festival. Uh, it's just exciting to bring all the different cultures who live in Regina into our community to show off their, their art. And it's just, uh, it's, it's very exciting. That's what brings people out. Uh, it's not the only festival we have. We have a um, Aboriginal Day. Uh, we take over a park in the middle of the city. We have any one of a number of uh, localized festivals. We have our community gardens planting bee. We have Christmas in July, whereby we bring things and share things, not the least of which is food. Right. So, as I say, these uh, these groups, they are together. They're doing it already. Um, I come from a place of a museum background, mm -hmm. and so I wanted to see how we could improve the quality of life of my neighbors, how we can perhaps slip in not, not, a, not a small amount of economic development mm -hmm. to bring that pride back to uh, mm -hmm. people. They are just, they're, they're such a, a wonderful group to work with, and I'm looking again to formalize this in the uh, months to come. Uh, as was mentioned before, we get control of it. We, right. we decide what to call it. Right. We decide how to uh, show off our history. And I'll just end with the culmination of which is going to, uh, it's all going to dovetail together in the North Central Shared Facility, which is going to be, it's, uh, it's going to be unique in Canada for bringing several agencies together under one roof. And by roof, there's also that outdoor roof, uh, the sky. Uh, so there's uh, the Museum Without Walls concept that's perfectly in North Central Regina, and I'm here to try to lead the charge 
walking side by side with my my friends and let's do it and if eco museums um are born also not out of fantastic ingredients, which you already have in place, but <laughs> yeah. also out of challenges you were talking oh, yes, about. One yes. of the challenges being um, because there are areas um, in your neighborhood that are that are, are poverty-stricken areas that, yep. that one of the things we hope to do anywhere in any community that, that is dealing with issues of poverty is to break those stereotypes Absolutely. Um, and yep. give a sense of pride mm -hmm. um, to that population as well, yeah? We've been stigmatized. We've been called Canada's worst neighborhood, whoop-de-doo. Right. Right. Uh, they have no business calling us that. They don't uh -huh. know who we are. Mm -hmm. We know who we are. We're just ready to brag to the rest of the city and the country. There's no room for language like that in an eco-museum. There you go. That's it. Exactly. Right, exactly. Yeah, we're all, we're all friends. We're all right. working together. And if it takes uh, a little extra oomph to extract ourselves, our mindset, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, take our rightful place in the city, here we go. Watch out. You've Stand got a great up. energy for this. <laughs> I'm you ready. You love it. I can I'm tell. Ready. I can tell you are. It's Thanks my, so much, yep, Jen. My okay, pleasure. Great. Hi. Hi, Kevin. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Now I'm with Heather Sauter um, from the uh, from Valmarie region. Um, booming population of your guessing about 130. 130 is my right. estimated guess, but there's also the surrounding area too. So there is ranchers and farmers that live in the area, but not necessarily in Valmarie. Right. So. And you are you are certainly well on your way as far as the eco museum concept goes you are one of the more advanced um, communities right now can you sort of give me the broad strokes of, of what's happening in your community um well prairie winds and silver sage is a friends group of parks canada mm -hmm. and so i think having that partnership already formalized was an easy way for us to transition into the eco museum idea of this shared leadership idea Lots of the volunteer board members are also members of other volunteer committees, and so we're then reaching a greater group of people um, with the Elevator Restoration Committee, and there is an Economic Development Committee um, staying connected with the Town of Valmarie and the RM as well. Um, so it's still in development phases. We're trying to do more every year that engages people again with the eco-museum idea and... Um, Prairie Winds is a building, but we also like to facilitate um, programs and events outside of Prairie Winds. Mm -hmm. So instead of trying to force people to constantly come back to the brick schoolhouse, we you know, bring the events to them as well right. to encourage people to participate, I guess. And part of your eco-museum is um, the coffee shop? It's a coffee shop, it's an gift. art gallery, mm -hmm. it's a gift shop, it's right. an eco-museum. And, and, and but you're also bringing in the hotel you were mentioning. Yeah, so we do presentations every year, and last year we did one presentation in the Valmarie Hotel that was really well received, so we're going to do another one there this year. Um, we also do, um, we host musical performances, right. but the venue of Prairie Winds is a little bit smaller, um, so what we decided to do was host it at the Valmarie Hotel, so to get people out to the hotel, have this event that the hotel doesn't have to organize, we're hosting it for them, and yet they get the business of having people there. So. Right. 
And we all know that Valmarie is littered with artists. You've got the Artist in Residence program there. Yes. How long has that been in place? Last year was the first year. Mm-hmm. So we did have quite a few artists come out. And um, it was just so diverse, too. There was the songwriting, um, poetry writing. It was uh, visual art, open art. Um, and it took place within Grasslands National Park, but also within Valmarie. Right. Valmarie is a very welcoming town. Um, they're familiar with tourists because the park's right there and so I find that visitors really enjoy coming down seeing the culture and they really connect to the place and want to come back. What's the feedback like from the community members that are that are living in Valmarie? I think it's mixed feelings. Mm -hmm. I know some of the younger people kind of see what Valmarie might be like if the park wasn't there or if tourists didn't come down if there wasn't researchers that came down every summer mm-hmm. um, there's lots of ghost towns or skeleton towns yeah. in the area and so I think they see the possibility that Valmarie could have been that um, but there's I think there's still mixed feelings over mm-hmm. the years about having the park there and having tourism mm-hmm. I think there might be a boom in business too so we'll see how that gets received by some of the locals Right. In talking about the younger demographic, um, here we are in 2015. Uh, I'll put you in the younger demographic as well. Thanks. Um, (laughs) How important do you think um, the whole digital era that we're living in is, uh, you know, the the social media aspect of it, the the digitalization of stories like podcasts? How important is that, do you think, versus, I mean, we'll always have print, but moving forward, we're we're in a very different time. Um, Does that, do you feel it's a valuable tool in in, uh, promoting eco-museums to have a, a digital footprint, as it were? I think for Valmarie in particular, it's essential just because where we're located, we're not on the way to any destination. Valmarie needs to be the destination. Right. Um, So just getting the word out about all, everything that the area has to offer, whether it's through video, through podcasts, through uh, Facebook, we have a website as well. So all those mediums to try to reach a greater audience and to lure people down to what we have to offer. Right, right. And it, I mean... It sounds like it's doing that already. I hope so. Right. How many? So, how many years are you saying this is? Two years under your belt um, as an eco, as a formalized eco museum. Well, Glenn came down in 2012 and did a presentation on eco museums, right. and this is the first time that we've heard of this concept. And it's hard to wrap your head it around is. it. It yeah. was confusing as to what we could do as an eco museum. Mm-hmm. So, from that, we hired a consultant to come mm-hmm. down and help us focus on what we could do to transition our space into an eco-museum model. Um, So that was, yeah, starting in 2012, and then we did a lot of work uh, redesigning our museum space as more an open concept and to bring in our eco-museum themes, so our wildlife, our landscapes, ranching, and the dark sky. Those were the themes that we wanted to focus on. Mm -hmm. Um, So we did that, and we had our museum opening in spring of 2013, And since then, we've kind of just been tweaking things, adding things where we can to try to re-engage people to come back, I think. Right. Right. Thinking outside of the box. Yes, trying to. Right, yeah. Well, that's what eco-museums are all about. That's probably why it's hard to get your head wrapped around it, Yeah. we were saying earlier. We get four walls and a roof. Yeah, come up with ideas that don't even exist. Exactly. (laughs) Where does that come from? Right, right. Sounds like you're doing it. Thanks. Thanks, Heather. Thank you.
This is one of those rare opportunities where we get to we get to we get to meet old podcast guests. It's nice to be together again. I'm sitting here with Jim Harding and Lorna Evans, uh, two of my earlier podcast guests. Lorna, your your mom Doreen was heavily featured in an early episode, and Jim, dare I say, your um, your house in Fort San is an eco museum in and of itself. It is a it it. it it's, it's living too, and it is living. There are right. people in it. Yeah, <laughs> but it, it's living within its walls and yeah. around the area and everything. Um, you're still sitting as mayor. Of I am. Right. Yep. Right. Orally, Orally. was unable to be here, um, uh, except other otherwise by phone. But she's really integral um, in working with you folks and also in. Uh, well, we're talking Fort Cape- we're talking Fort Capel, Catepua, and Calling Lakes area. Yeah. Um, We're talking Pasqua Lake, uh-huh. which is the first lake in the lower Capel, then Echo, which Fort San is on, right. then Mission, and then Catapa, where Aurelie's from. So it's like a coalition of those four lakes. Right. And both Lauren and I are in the Fort Capel area, which is really where a lot of the activity has to come from. Yeah. I grew up on the shores of Mission Lake. So she's yeah. Mission. We've got three of the four lakes, but uh, we've got all the lakes yeah. in, the, in the sort of eco-museum. And you've got, it's a challenging area. Um, it was a rough summer, mm-hmm. last summer. Well, and Randy, who's here with us, mm-hmm. was on Pasqua Lake, so we literally have all the four yes. lakes in our right. in our grouping. It was a very rough summer because biggest downpour in a five-day period Mm -hmm. that this area has seen, certainly since records have been kept, and uh, Regina didn't have a backup plan for its lagoons, and they were overflowing, so rather than sewage back up in property, they dumped the untreated sewage into the Wascana Creek, and it came into the Capel lake chain and uh, the sediment, the combination of the sewage and and the runoff coming into the lakes from all kinds of things brought so much sediment, so much E. coli and contamination that no one recognized the water. It was a it was a yellow, a bronze brown with lots of stuff in it that we hadn't seen before which was probably combination of plant life and sewage mm-hmm. and uh, the people in Bethesda who were s- accustomed to summer uh, activity on the lakeshore couldn't believe it we shut down the kayak canoe business in Fort Capella at the Echo Valley Park and slowly tried to find out what had happened because we found out through the media Regina didn't even tell us it was coming so it did bring cottagers, local governments, First Nations, NGOs like Kairos into the same room around the water. Yeah. yeah. And Lorna, you were talking about some of the challenges, the, the erosion of the riverbank. Well, yes, my, my 90-year-old mother and I mm. have been trying to stop some of the destruction. There's been a lot of destruction of the riverbank Really, just they while these towns and jurisdictions were doing these official community plans that have a lot of very good sounding things in them, 
a lot of the worst destruction has been happening. Yeah. And they, I, so we've been trying to get people to realize the value of the hills and the river banks and the marsh areas. And it doesn't, it's been kind of falling on deaf ears, I think. So I'm hoping, I'm hopeful that this eco museum will raise more awareness. And it seems the idea of it is really to foster respect for all the things that are important, like people and cultures and the environment and the water. So uh, it seems like a positive thing. Can you recall the analogy that you said just minutes ago um, comparing the area to the Louvre Museum oh. what that would be like? <laughs> because it was such a clever... Yeah, I hope I'm remembering. I've, I've been to the Louvre and I think that yes. the the... That the Venus de Milo and and the um, Mona Lisa are there, but yes, that's what I said. If the if this uh, area is to be a museum, things are quite urgent because we've already destroyed the Mona Lisa and we're breaking off more of the Venus de Milo. So it's quite urgent. It is. It is a perfect analogy, and and perhaps your area is um, a great example of. Uh, out of challenges um, is born the Eco Museum concept. I mean, it's wonderful to talk about communities that already have all the ingredients um, uh, lined up and all the great activities happening to just snap this Eco Museum together and bring all these community resources together. But do we find the need for an Eco Museum um, born out of challenges like the ones you're dealing with now? The network that's forming is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And as I was trying to point out earlier, there are precursors before the word eco-museum. There's precursors, the community plays, uh, for sure, common wheels work building community arts for decades. I think this one is important because it does it it does address sustainability, which is multifaceted. And, and we have... So, so Nature Saskatchewan and the Heritage Group should be in the same room. Mm -hmm. we, we really have to have that all-encompassing vision if we're going to do anything around sustainability. It right. uh, doesn't mean that calling it that makes it any easier to build significant links between farmers, cottagers, urbanites, uh, First Nations, local governments, provincial and federal regulators or non-regulators, it's, it's not going to make that any easier, but at least more people are in a network where they're going to construct some kind of common vision. Yeah. And that's part of planning in the best sense of the word and cultural, the cultural planning model sort of in there. The heritage models in there, the environmental protection models in there, the local economies in there, and they all have to be. So we're in. We're, we're the table's getting bigger. There's yeah. more people around the table, and that's that's a great thing. And do you think that's being that's being the, the catalyst uh, of all of these you know tragic things that have happened over the past summer? Has that sort of spurred that on it faster has. than otherwise it might? It has. Yeah, it's brought more people in the room. Ten years ago, there were cottages who were scapegoating First Nations for opposing putting dams in to keep the water level up and the cottagers couldn't get their boats in the water. This year the cottagers were in a meeting in the Treaty 4 Governance Center 
where two of the speakers on the panel are First Nations. Right. Um, so, and Kairos has been along that whole journey because if there isn't a, we call it building right relationships, if we don't do that in the process of tackling water quality, we're not going to succeed. We can't have a settler water quality strategy and a First Nations water quality strategy. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. So the right relationships, the watershed stewardship, and now the eco-museum notion to me, they just make sense. Mm -hmm. They just make sense. You mentioned First Nations, and Glenn and I talked about this briefly yesterday, um, but the eco-museum concept seems to marry very well with the First Nations sensibility as I understand it. I they're, mean that they're not using the word though. No, they're not using the word, but is it not already part of their heritage? Their well, let's put it this way. When they hear more about this, it will be interesting to see what, their, what the curiosity is because we had trouble with the municipal governments building links with First Nations because of jurisdiction issues. Why would First Nations want a relationship with municipalities mm -hmm. when their relationship is with the federal government around treaties? Mm -hmm. And why would they want a relationship with us when the federal government would like First Nations to only be like municipal governments? Do you see the dilemma? Sure. That's our dilemma politically. This doesn't have that dilemma. No. This has a bigger a bigger group of people and local governments only one one of the voices. So I guess what I'm thinking is that it's very essence um, it mirrors the it mirrors the bedrock the foundation that is could, uh, that is could. the um, uh, the aboriginal um, story. I yeah. mean as it, long as the heritage is as long as the stories that are culture and heritage and water mm -hmm. views of water mm -hmm come from all sides. Right. Right now, we know this isn't true. So this will be a, a chance at bridging and retreating the relationship in a creative sphere mm -hmm. rather than a contentious sphere. And that we need those bridges. All yeah. the different stakeholders do have a quite a different relationship to the water yeah, yeah. so we have to understand all of our relationships with the water mm -hmm. yeah I complex. guess yeah I, it is complex but I, I guess my naive thinking wants to say the eco museum is the common denominator stands to be a common denominator between all of those elements that you well it's the only about. thing it's the only gig in town right right <laughs> and it's a bigger tent Right. And therefore, you should do what you can do. Right. You know, and it brings, that's why we're here. Yeah. Well, we've already seen what you and uh, a, a group of very dedicated volunteers have done with a vision for the old central school in, in uh, Fort Capel, uh, which is now a thriving art center. Um, so I've no doubt that two people like yourselves as well as the other people that are, are behind this concept can make it happen. Thank you both. Good to see you both again. <laughs> nice to see you. Thank you. Nice to see nice you. Nice to see you. Thanks for listening. The Sascapes podcast is created and hosted by Kevin Power for Sass Culture. Funding to the cultural sector is provided through the Saskatchewan Lottery's Trust Fund for Sport, Culture, and Recreation. For more information, visit iheartculture.ca 
and sasculture.ca. Music for Sascapes is provided by Saskatchewan-born singer-songwriter Jeffrey Straker. There's no end to the stories to be told. So, until next time... <laughs>